Steven Spielberg's latest blockbuster encountered perhaps the most graphic, visceral opening film sequence ever made. That moving Saving Private Ryan begins with a depiction of the U.S. Army landing at Omaha Beach in World War II. From the movie's beginning, the bloody panorama of Normandy shocked viewers with the noise, the gore, the chaos of battle. It produced uncontrollable emotional and physical reactions in the audience, particularly among military veterans. 75-year-old Frank L. Davis recounted that he felt a tightening in my chest, and I couldn't breathe, and I shed a lot of tears. It felt like I was right there again. It was so real. The movie even prompted the Department of Veteran Affairs to set up a special counseling hotline and to advertise on their website, disturbed by what you saw in the film Saving Private Ryan or know someone who is, the VA can help. As one reviewer noted, sentimental and cheery, it is not, nor is the violence in any way glorious or thrilling. It is terrifying, claustrophobic, difficult to watch. The reaction is not, wish I was there, as much as it is, get me out of here, largely because the violence is presented so matter-of-factly and from a soldier's point of view. To shock his viewers with the brutal reality of war through his visual storytelling was Spielberg's intention. Frustrated by prior depictions of battle that were overly romanticized and sanitized, Spielberg said, I really felt an obligation to honor the courage of what those soldiers went through. Most of the stories I heard from veterans were honest stories about palpable terror, almost blind terror. I felt we needed to be truthful to do honor to those soldiers. Telling the truth often requires the truth teller to be blunt and impolite. In a like manner, Ezekiel 16 is a strikingly impolite passage of scripture. Sentimental and cheery, it is not. Nor is the sex and violence in any way glorious or thrilling. It is terrifying claustrophobic, difficult to read. Through an allegorical story about an unfaithful wife, God's prophet lays bare in graphic, explicit, and vile terms the depths of Jerusalem's depravity and sinfulness. The Lord commands the prophet in verse 2, Son of man, uh, sorry, uh, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord of God to Jerusalem. And confront he does, and with such a graphic depiction of Israel's abominations that it makes us blush. The Victorian-era Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon once stated that so indecorous is Ezekiel's 16 language, a minister can scarcely read it in public. I'm not a minister, <laughs> I'm just a ruling elder. So maybe I can get away with being rude and polite, or maybe not. <laughs> But when it comes to describing our sinful natures and actions, decorum has no place. Euphemisms regarding the severity of God's diagnosis of our sin do not serve us well. Ezekiel will not be polite about Jerusalem's long history of sin, but instead exposes it in its full ugliness. Like Jerusalem, we need to be shocked out of our stupor. We must be kicked out of complacency. 
As hard as it is for me to read and for you to hear, we need the blunt and brutal truth about ourselves that God's word in Ezekiel 16 presents. The lack of decorum and politeness in Ezekiel's message is the point. We need to see and to grasp the ugliness of this passage and the ugliness of our human condition in order to understand the amazing, unexpected depth and commitment of God's incomprehensible love for us. Just as Spielberg stated that we needed to know the true horror of war to appreciate the courage and sacrifice of soldiers, only when we see how abominable and unlovable Jerusalem's and our sins are can we truly realize the unfathomable depths of God's love. The three parts of the prophet's allegorical story about Jerusalem demonstrate the ugliness of their sin, but they also proclaim the bold hope and the redemptive power of God making atonement for that sin. First, Ezekiel's graphic allegory about Jerusalem begins with the helpless and hopeless condition of God's people before he sets his love upon them. Verses 4 through 6 portray Jerusalem as an abandoned baby girl whose umbilical cord has not been cut, who has not been washed of the blood and amniotic fluid covering her, who's not been anointed with salt or oil, who's not been wrapped in swaddling cloths, all actions that were part of standard newborn care in ancient Palestine. Instead, soon as she was born, she was left by a roadside to die, alone and unloved. The exposure of weak and unwanted children, especially girls, was common practice in the ancient world, an all too familiar spectacle. Just as in modern times, when the majority of aborted children are girls, Jerusalem is described as a daughter who is so abhorred that nobody wants her, nobody cares for her, nobody weeps for her. Verse 5, no, I pitied you to do any of, any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. From the very moment of her birth, this child was cast out like rubbish. Death would have surely resulted, if not, for the intervention of God who gave her life. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. What a picture Ezekiel paints of this abandoned, bloody, roadside mess, destined for death until God intruded upon the scene. As Ian Duguid so succinctly put it, into that situation of helplessness and hopelessness came God's intervention. Passing by the sorry spectacle, he spoke his life-giving word, causing her to live and thrive like a plant of the field. More than just live, God graciously makes her beautiful and adorns her with every good thing. Notice the subject of all the verbs in this passage. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. This child, Jerusalem, grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty solely because of the work of God who set his covenant love upon her. 
everything she had, including life itself, she received from God. In 1970, Marcel Duchamp walked into a New York plumbing supply store and bought what's known as a Bedfordshire-style urinal from the array of bathroom fixtures. When he returned to his studio, he laid his gleaming porcelain find on its back, signed it R. Mutt, 1917, and submitted the piece that he named The Fountain to an exposition sponsored by the Society of Independent Artists. His submission sparked an intense debate over whether this impolite display of a toilet fixture constituted art. Duchamp argued that anything could be a work of art, good, bad, or ugly, as long as the artist called it art. For Duchamp, it was the conception and intention of the artist that made something art, more so than its physical form or beauty. While the society rejected the submission, and only a picture of the original fountain survives, in 2004, 200 uh, select British uh, art professionals voted Duchamp's fountain the most influential artwork of the 20th century. In 1997, a Greek art collector purchased one of 17 replicas that Duchamp made in the 1960s for over $2 million, and uh, dealers speculate that the original, if it ever were found and authenticated, would be worth northward of $100 million. Now my point is not to enter into debate over what is or is not art. But my point is to say, like Duchamp's fountain, it is the election, the choice, the intention of the divine artist God who takes something discarded and ugly, a urinal, and makes it beautiful and treasured. The moral beauty of God's people is not innate, but inscribed upon them by the work of their God. God's electing work takes people who that are truly despised, truly broken and hideous, and transforms them into his beautiful and beloved handiwork. The book of Deuteronomy makes this point about Israel repeatedly, as it tells them it was not because you are more than any num more in number than any uh, other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to His fathers. The Lord's choice of Jerusalem was not merely a legal and political convenience, but a true love match on His part. He did for the girl what no one else had ever done, washed her of her blood, anointed her, and clothed her in a threefold reversal of the circumstances of her birth when she was not washed, not anointed, not clothed. The same is true of us. God has not set his love upon us because of the loveliness of our righteousness or our moral beauty. As Paul says, all our righteousness are as filthy rags, or as Paul told Titus, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We need to keep our true origins in mind, lest we forget the incomprehensible love of God. 
as John says in Revelation, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Or as the hymn writer so beautifully stated, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. Jerusalem's beauty was not innate. She did not go from rags to riches out of her own strength. Her glory was graciously bestowed, uh, a graciously bestowed gift of God. It reflected his splendor and de demonstrated the power of his love. God did not love us because we were lovely, but it is his amazing love that makes us lovely by washing away our bloody filth and making us clean through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, after this uh, scene, opening scene of a bloody rescue, the second part of Ezekiel's story takes a dark turn as the prophet presents a graphic picture of Jerusalem's sin. After listing all those covenantal blessings and gifts which, with, with which God adorned his bride, Jerusalem, in verse 15 we shift, reading, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. In this part of the allegory, Ezekiel strips away Jerusalem's self-conceit as the beautiful and golden city and replaces it with an indictment of Jerusalem, the prostitute. As Daniel Block aptly commented, she lost all sense of history, perspective, and propriety. The temporal and the ephemeral replaced the eternal. The gift displaced the giver. Jerusalem had done the very thing that God had warned them against in Deuteronomy when he cautioned, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Jerusalem had forgotten and despised her covenant husband, turning away from him, seeking fulfillment in her whoring pursuit of other gods and prosperity through relationship to other nations. Ezekiel starts this section by describing how the city increasingly devoted its wealth and beauty to its idolatrous worship of idols. Notice how Ezekiel takes every one of those blessings, those gifts that God had bestowed upon this formerly unlovable child and shows how Jerusalem in turn adulterously gave those gifts to other gods. God clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather, wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. But you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. God put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. But verse 17, you took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. 
Verse 19, also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. Worst of all, this bride who herself was a despised daughter whose parents left her to die, took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. You slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire. As one commentator summarized, instead of remembering that it was the Lord who had endowed her with all these blessings, she trusted in her beauty and prostituted her reputation. Like the prodigal son, she wasted her substance in riotous living. Her forgetfulness also extended to the power that had brought Israel into the promised land, maintaining her in peace and prosperity. Rather than trust in God's providence to sustain her, Jerusalem turned to other nations, seeking political security by prostrating herself to foreign powers and their promises of protection. As Israel's paganism increased, its tendency to ignore the Lord and depend for its security on international alliances grew. In verses 23 through 29, Ezekiel names the nations with whom Judah allied, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, each one taking more from Jerusalem than they gave. The repeated refrain in this section, you were not satisfied, captures both Judah's lusting after what those other nations offered, as well as the lack of fulfillment that came from those alliances. The books of Kings and Chronicles provide example after example of kings having to strip the temple bare to meet the rapacious demands of their political allies who only came back for more and more. Ezekiel points out the irony that there is no profit or gain in Jerusalem's adultery since she pays her lover from the abundance that God gave her. Verse 33, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side. Jerusalem loses rather than gains with each of its foreign's alliance. And with each one, we hear the prophet say, she spiraled deeper down into idolatry, as those alliances often required her to serve the sovereign nation's gods. No wonder God declares, how sick is your heart because you did all these things. Instead of remembering her despicable beginnings or celebrating the goodness of God toward her, she scorned God's grace and looked elsewhere for satisfaction. We too, as recipients of God's boundless love and grace, face this danger. Exchanging his love and gifts for temporal things that ultimately cost us more than, can, than they can deliver. Forgetfulness of one's wretched beginnings and God's unrestrained expressions of love quickly leads to pride, self-indulgence, and adulterous pursuit of the gods of this world. As the Apostle Paul states, now these, thing took, these things took place as examples for us that we not, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be as idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We inhabit a world that over and over promises fulfillment and satisfaction, making gods of material things, of sexual license, and even gods of ourselves. We fall into the trap of thinking things will be better if only we get more political power or that we can manipulate the world to fulfill our desires and meet our disease, our, our needs. We forget God as the author of life and rule of this, ruler of this world. We don't remember his word and its teaching. And thus, like Jerusalem, we suffer the consequences. The juxtaposition of Jerusalem's sin against the background of God's gracious love leads us to the final section, which graphically depicts God's righteous declaration of judgment against Jerusalem. Note how the punishment fits the crime. The very nations who Judah adulterously pursued are the ones who attack and exile her population. The word naked and exile are basically synonyms in Hebrew. So when the Lord states, I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness, it is an allegorical pronouncement of, God, of Judah's coming exile. Ezekiel emphasizes the justness of this verdict in verse 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I've returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? By this point of Ezekiel's graphic tale, Jerusalem's behavior should cause us to assent with God's verdict. Yet if we do not find the verdict surprising, Ezekiel continues to shock us with an astonishing description of Judah's family tree. Both Ezekiel and his contemporary Jeremiah commented on Judah's self-righteous complacency, their fervent self-conviction that they were morally superior to their neighbors. So Ezekiel's word must have struck a blow when she states that she was far worse than her sisters, Samaria and Sodom. Both Samaria and Sodom uh, suffered the visible and dramatic judgment of God. And by this time in Judah's history, their names had become a byword, representing the ultimate uh, of depravity. Incredibly, here Ezekiel declares that Judah's sin was so much worse that she made them look good and righteous in comparison, verse 52, because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Clearly, as Ezekiel states, Jerusalem rightly bears the penalty of her lewdness and abominations. And God declares his judgment, stating that I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. This summer, during our road trip to Nashville, Dana and I listened in the car to um, a book by the Southern humorist Harrison Scott Key and his wife, Lauren, 
Uh, the book's called How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told. Uh, this book tells the story of Lauren's long-term adulterous relationship, its devastating effects on their family, but ultimately how God's amazing grace brought about a reconciliation. It's simultaneously laugh-out funny and tragically sad. Uh, I, I, I laughed, I wept uh, listening to this book. And unfortunately, it's all too familiar in our Christian circles. At one point in the story, the marriage seems definitively over. Like you're, as the re listener for me, or as the reader, um, you're like, how can this possibly uh, be restored? Even Harrison's closest friends and his minister are counseling him to seek a divorce because he has biblical grounds, he has legal grounds, she's abandoned uh, him, she's abandoned her children, um, and so a divorce seems imminent. That's the point we are in Ezekiel's text or in Ezekiel's story. We've reached that same point. If this allegorical story were to end here with a divine divorce and the chapter concluded with Jerusalem's complete destruction, we could have no complaints about the verdict. Incredibly, though, the chapter and the story ends the same way it started, with the incomprehensible an unexpected love of God. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant, declares the Lord. Just as it was only the gracious action of God that gave Jerusalem life in the first place, so too is it that God's gracious provision of, for atonement of sin brings about reconciliation. Although they've forgotten God and his covenant, he remembers his promises and he makes new promises to them even as he rightly punishes them for their sin. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel's ending to this obscene allegory of the unfaithful wife is so unexpected that some scholars think it can't be real. But it's true. How can it be true? Because of the reality of another ugly and obscene story. The story of the cross. As one person summarized that story, the only truly innocent man who ever lived was convicted in a rigged trial, abused by his guards until he could scarcely walk, and forced to carry his own cross on a back that had been flayed raw. Nails were forced through the living flesh of his hands and feet. He's jerked upright to hang until too tired to lift himself one more time. He suffocates and dies. How could God permit such a death? How could God permit his only beloved son to undergo such agony? What awful thing could be so bad that only that atonement on the cross could pay for it? The answer is sin. In the cross, we see sin revealed in its starkest, most abominable ugliness. There's the atonement that God made. There is the atonement that God made, the ransom he paid for his people. The cost of our salvation was not silver and gold, but the precious blood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, we remember our sin with shame, seeing it in all its shocking graphic offensiveness. But at that same cross, we see graphically display the unfathomable love of God. It's that love we see in Ezekiel 16. As God rescued a broken, abhorred child, graciously covenanted with her and lavished his good gifts upon her, endured her lustful pursuit of other gods and nations, rightly brought his covenant curses upon her, but who graciously remembers his covenant and take act, takes action to atone for her sins. Ezekiel 16 is indeed a shocking story, but it's a story that displays, graphically displays, the incomprehensible love of our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us on a cross. Lord, that is the message that we see imprinted on Ezekiel 16. And it's the message that we have to proclaim to ourselves daily. To not make light of our sin. To not lightly forget your commandments, but to remember you and remember what you have done for us, to remember what our sin cost. It cost us our Savior's life, and that he laid that life down willingly out of his love for us. Truly amazing love. How can it be? Help us to celebrate this love as we gather together at this table, remembering your shed blood and your broken body, celebrating together that we have been made one with Christ, united to him through his blood and life-giving resurrection. Help us go in awe of your amazing love for us. And we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.